Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at capitalchurch.co. Um, all right. Well, last week we, um, we started, uh, Pastor Shane kicked us off with an amazing series, um, series um, that I'm really excited about, talking about the shadow work of God, meaning God is always working. Even when you can't see it, God is always working. And I love Pastor Shane's message last week saying, um, sometimes what things seem to be aren't always what they seem. Have you ever felt that in your life? <laughs> Things are seemingly going one direction, but somehow God is seemingly working things in a different direction. So I wanna piggyback off of that this week in this series. And I'm calling this message, if you want a title, if you like to take notes, it's the invisible work of God. The invisible work of God. I believe we live in an invisible kingdom of God. I know you can't see it, right? Like if somebody asked me, could I get the directions to the kingdom of God? I could not give you physical directions, right? Your Google map leads you astray always, but it certainly would lead you astray if you tried to get directions to the kingdom of God, right? It probably would land you at the village because everything's at the village and Eagle Road is crazy. So it'd probably be somewhere over there. Um, But we don't have direction to the kingdom of God, but we're gonna get some insight, hopefully through scripture today about where the kingdom of God lives because it has a home. There is a reality. And it's, it's, it's more of a reality than the visible reality we see. And so today we're gonna talk about that invisible kingdom, the invisible work of God. So let's go to Luke chapter 17, Luke's gospel. We're just gonna read a couple scriptures and we're gonna believe God is going to speak to us today. Do you believe that? Do you really do? Do you really think that you can come to church and God will speak to you? I do. I mean, I I come every single Sunday hoping and ready and in a posture ready for God to speak to me. So Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, we're going to read these. This is Jesus. He's with his disciples. The Pharisees are coming after him, asking him all sorts of questions. And so we have this, this dialogue between the Pharisees and Jesus. And it says, being asked this is Jesus, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's the invisible kingdom but it's arrived in 2020, it is here. Come on, come on church. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for your kingdom. We thank you for your power and your authority. Lord, we trust you today above everything else. And Lord, we ask that we would be citizens of your kingdom. Help us to know how to participate in the kingdom activity that comes with being a citizen of your kingdom. Lord, teach us, instruct us, Lord, if you need to, convict us. Lord, help us to be the people of God you've called us to be for such a time as this. Lord, it's not a mistake that you placed us in this time in history. And Lord, I pray that we would be the people of God who respond in faith and with kingdom activity in Jesus' name. If you believe it, say amen. 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 So, I believe this, that the kingdom of God is, is not a visible kingdom, right? I can't 
I can't reach out and touch it. I can't get on a plane and arrive there. I can't go there on vacation, right? There's, there's, it's not this destination that we think of any other kingdom. If you think of kingdoms or countries or places, if you said, hey, I'm gonna go on a vacation, well, you can't right now. <laughs> but if you wanted to go on a vacation somewhere, you, you, you plan it, you, you know the directions, you know there's a route to get there. Well, the kingdom of God is not like that. And that's challenging for us because we live in a visible world, but we actually live in an invisible reality. It, 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 we live in a very visible, right? We see, we saw the snow today. It's visible, it's tangible, you could touch it, it's cold, I love it, right? I got in the car and immediately listened to Christmas music and I hope that doesn't offend you because you thought I should be listening to Bethel, but Christmas music gets me just as excited for the Lord as Bethel and Upper Room and anybody else because uh, Christmas is about Jesus, remember? Um, so it, there's tangible, visible realities, right? You can go outside and you see trees and um, my husband and I still need to fully get rid of all the trees. And then the snow came. It's okay. I'm not bitter. It's okay. We'll get there, right? Uh, but there's visible things in our world, right? There's people, you're sitting next to them. You can see them. So we don't negate the fact that we live in a visible world, a visible reality, but we live more in, as people of God, an invisible reality, which means there's unseen work happening all the time. In fact, the majority of God's work is unseen. Now, isn't that exciting to think about? Because there are things we see that God does. We do. You can see how he miraculously paints the skies. And you can see how he does and changes seasons. And you see how he heals bodies and helps people and aids people. You can see how he restores relationships. You can see how he brings perfect. We can see these things. But the majority of God's work is unseen. Which means God does way more than I ever will know. That should encourage someone today. God does more than we realize. Why? Because he lives in the invisible realm. His kingdom is happening all around us and he's actively moving and having authority and power within his kingdom. But we just see the visible. We see the polls, we see the election, we see government, we see medicine, we see, uh, we see TV, we see people, we see hurts, we see the, the, the problems of our world, we see destruction, we see evil, we see all of these things and human effort, we see this. And not that those things and we deny those things are in our world, but we live in a greater reality. And it's invisible. And what makes God's kingdom strong are not the same things that make our kingdom, this world we live in, strong. And that, I think, is a tension. I think it's hard for us as Americans. We blend those two, and it's difficult for us to see that what makes America strong, and we love our nation, don't we? We love our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray for our nation. But what makes America strong is not the same thing that makes the kingdom of God strong. Because it's, a, it's an invisible world. So we have to imply or, or apply the visible, the invisible, not tangible, but supernatural real, realities of heaven into our kingdom. So we have to think differently. In fact, Eugene Peterson says the kingdom of God, it's subversive to the kingdom of this world. Subversive is a strong word. And I wondered if Eugene Peterson wanted to like tone it down and maybe use something like it's opposite or it's, it's different. He uses subversive. 
If you know what subversive means, it's not tender. It's not going against the kingdom of our world like, oh, we just probably shouldn't do those things. What does subversive mean? It goes against it with every fiber. It is completely opposite. And if it has to use the kind of force in the heavenlies, it will. But what makes this kingdom, this visible kingdom strong, is not what makes God's kingdom strong. We have to first recognize the invisible, unseen, miraculous working of God all of the time. I love it because it's all throughout scripture. If you look at the scripture, especially I love the Old Testament. And man, there's a movement today where people are like not that interested in the Old Testament. And it breaks my heart as as a Bible teacher and and a student of his word. The Old Testament Man, what God does in the Old Testament shows us today what God has called us into, what he's rescued us from. It's the story that he's written for us. And so you see in this story, this great grand narrative that God has written, is that the people of God, remember way back in Genesis, God declares that there's a descendant through Abraham. There's, there's going to be people through, that will come through, um, through Abraham will, that will inherit the whole earth. They're going to get land. They're going to possess all this stuff. But then you go a while and you don't see it. Then you finally get to Exodus and you, we find the people of God. God has set the people apart that he's going to give his descendants and bless and the, the land is going to come through them. But they find themselves in slavery in chapter 1. Exodus chapter one, the people of God, the chosen ones, the special ones, the ones who are part of God's kingdom and God's rule and God's world are now in slavery. Well, that doesn't seem like God's really working. Because why would God put his people and allow them to be in slavery? Have you ever asked those questions in your own life? Like, God, if you're God, then why is this? Fill in the blank. Because what we don't realize is that God is working. In Exodus chapter one, we see the Israelite people are getting strong and they're multiplying, right? And Pharaoh is getting nervous and the people in Egypt are getting nervous because they're getting outnumbered and outpowered. I mean, these are some strong people. So Pharaoh goes, I'm gonna make them slaves. I'm gonna make them work hard. They're gonna work for us. This is gonna tear them down. Doesn't tear them down, makes them stronger. And they keep multiplying. So then Pharaoh goes, well, I'm gonna have to do population control. So I'm gonna eliminate as many of these, as these Israelites as I possibly can. So he, he gets the midwives, the Egyptian midwives, to then go to, and he commands them, for every Hebrew that has a baby, if they have a boy, you kill it. If they have a girl, you let them live. So these, these non-God-fearing, think about this, these non-God-fearing midwives, they're not, they're not Hebrew women, they're Egyptian women, feared God. Somehow in the invisible realm, in the unseen realm, God comes upon these women and puts the fear of God upon them. That they say, no, I can't do that. I can't, I can't, I can't kill these, these, these boys. And so then you go and the Pharaoh gets mad. Guess what? We don't even, and do you know this? In Exodus chapter one, at this point, we still haven't even heard God. God's not even on the scene in this chapter. God's not talking. God seems seemingly absent. His people are hurting and are slaves and now their children are supposed to be killed off. It's not until the very end of Exodus chapter one that God, after he has impressed upon these women to make sure they do not kill these Israelite boys, then God comes on the scene and speaks and blesses the midwives for what they've done. And guess what happens through that act of the faithfulness of those women? God raises up a mighty army of Israelites that are able to leave and leave to go to the promised land. See, God is working. We just can't always see it. 
And the circumstances of life tend to be so uh, uh, visible and screaming in our face that we typically just falter to, well, I guess, I guess that's what the reality is. I'm just going to keep loving Jesus. Well, no, God says to live in faith, to trust that he's working. The Old Testament is full of these invisible narratives of God working. I love in Genesis, the story of Joseph. Is that not a God that seems to be invisible and absent, but he's in fact working, right? He has psychopath brothers. He's the favorite son. He goes from the favorite son to a slave to the second in command in Egypt, all in one story. And he not only saves the family that threw him into slavery, but he saves the known world from a famine? Is that not the work of God? Is that not the, the invisible hand of a mighty God? Then you have one of my favorite stories in all the biblical narrative, which is about Rahab in Joshua, the book of Joshua. Rahab, who is a demon-worshiping Canaanite prostitute. I mean, that's, that's like, that's a lot. We're working with a lot here. Demon, like generations of demon worshiper, demon worshiping in her family and a prostitute. And it's the two spies, Joshua sends two spies into Jericho to, to, to spy out the land. And this woman, who's a Canaanite, demon worshiper, not a God-fearing woman, and a prostitute, somehow has heard about the miraculous works of God for the Israelite people and sees, and sees these men and hides them. She hides them in her house and she says to them, hey, if I do this for you, will you save our family? We've heard of Jehovah. We've heard of what he's done in the miraculous things. Why? Because he's doing work all over and all the time. So God saves. He saves Rahab and her family. Remember the walls fall down and her house was built in a wall. Guess what part didn't fall down? But here's the coolest part of it. Rahab is the great, 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 times 24 great grandmother of Jesus. You know who her son is? Boaz. You know who her daughter-in-law is? Ruth. A demon-worshipping prostitute from Canaan. God is seemingly working behind the scenes of her life. And then she finds herself in the lineage of Jesus. She becomes, she's one of the only women named in the genealogy of Jesus. And in the New Testament, in fact, she's mentioned in the Hall of Faith, uh, the, the Hall of Faith in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, but they always call her the prostitute or the harlot. Not in Matthew, when they list the genealogy, they just call her Rahab, the woman of faith, that because of her yes to Jehovah and her faith in God, God used her and through her line, Jesus comes on the scene. Come on, God is working. He always has. We just have to believe and see in the invisible, not just the visible. Then you have Esther. Come on, we love Esther. The orphan to a, to a queen. This beautiful story. God's not even mentioned in the book of Esther, but you see his, his providential hand through the whole text. Not once is God mentioned, but that does not, but you know as you're reading it, the readers are captivated by the work of God through the whole thing. Come on. It's one of the greatest stories in the Bible. Haman, the evil Haman, who is getting ready, sets up gallows to hang the righteous people, but it's his very gallows that he ends up dying on. Why? Because God is working and he brought Esther, an orphan, to a queen so that she would be built and living for such a time as this. There's invisible work all around us. 
If you think that your life and our world and what's happening today is just, well, it's just, it's, it's the world we live in. No, it's invisible kingdom realities. We need to see with eyes of faith and we need to see with kingdom perspective so that we know that yes, there's visible stuff. We don't deny stuff that's going on. If you have something difficult in your family, you don't just deny, faith is not denying reality. That's not, that's not faith, that's actually fear. But faith says, hey, in spite of this, I know that there's mountains and obstacles and difficulties and it seems impossible, but, but God, and I know the God from this Old Testament to the New Testament and who lives today is the same God who rescues, delivers, and works and does impossible things. It's invisible work. See, even when God seems absent, he's not. Even when God, when it might feel in your story that God is maybe messed up, maybe 2020 you thought, God, you got it wrong somewhere. No, he hasn't. God is still working and moving and establishing his kingdom. But Luke 17 shows us it's an invisible kingdom. He says, remember the Pharisees are like, okay, God, when does the kingdom come? And he's like, stop asking when the kingdom of God is coming. Stop asking when. The kingdom of God is already in your midst. He says, don't say it comes from there or is it over here. Start recognizing that it lives on the inside of us. This is the invisible kingdom. He says this, the kingdom of God is in our midst. What does that mean, in our midst? Well, scholars uh, typically say different things of what this could mean, but most would agree the fact that this, this is not a, in our midst does not mean, it's just in me, it's a private um, kingdom reality in my heart, and I just walk around living with the reality of this private spiritual relationship that I have with God. It's just me and God. The problem with that is that the kingdom of God has never been private. The kingdom of God throughout the text is always public. God doesn't just save his kingdom for some people and isolate and exclude others. His kingdom is for everybody. So it's a public display. He doesn't just sometimes go, okay, I, wanna, I want you to get saved and go to church and I just want you to hold it in your heart. You know, and just be happy and smile. I mean, you should smile. But no, it's not a privatized faith. The kingdom is not this private movement. It's not for you just to enjoy and hopefully bring your family into. No, it's more than that. Jesus uses the kingdom of God to show a public world that he is working when nothing else seems to be. Others would suggest that this phrase of the kingdom of God in our midst is, is yes, it's present. Maybe it, we believe in the realities, but it's hidden and it's waiting to be discovered. No, it's closer, but it's not waiting to be discovered. It's already real. So I think the best understanding of what it means for the kingdom to be in our midst is that we recognize the kingdom of God has arrived. And wherever Jesus is present, the kingdom is present. And if Jesus is in my life, then guess what? The kingdom of God is in me. So the kingdom of God is active. See, all the other ones are passive. 
To believe it's private is passive. To believe I'm waiting for is passive. But to believe that the kingdom of God has arrived in me is active. And I can't sit by and wait for something to happen and twiddle my thumbs and hope that the other faithful good Christians are making sure it's happening. But no, the kingdom of God is in me and it's on me to activate the activity of his kingdom. It's on me. See, it's within our grasp. The kingdom of God, it, it, it's an active and it requires active participation. It isn't something that we just wait to happen. And I think we do as Christians, we're just waiting. Like as if the kingdom of God means when we get to heaven. Or if the kingdom of God, if I'll make one political statement, the kingdom of God arrives when whoever we vote for is in office. It's gonna change like every four to eight years, just so you know. I've been alive for 40, I've lived through a lot. It changes. And the kingdom of God has always been established, has always been in our midst, but it's my responsibility to activate it. How do we activate the kingdom of God and the plan of God in our world? I think the way we do it is we use the language of the kingdom. How do we use the language of the kingdom? It's prayer. Have you ever thought of that? Well, how does, what is, how does God talk like? Have you thought that? I mean, like does, like, does he? Like, obviously he knows every language, but what's his primary language? What, what's, what, what's the one he dreams in? You know, they say you're fluent in the language you dream in. What's the language God dreams in? Prayer. The tears of his saints. The prophetic cries of his people the hearts that cry out to God for God to move and for his kingdom to come and to, for his will to be done. That's, I think, the language of heaven. That's the language of God. And it's the invisible realm's language. But here's the problem. We live in a visible world. We know that, right? You're very acutely aware of that this week. I'm sure you thought more about the visible world than you did the invisible world this week. I'm at, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I did. I watched a lot of news, watched a lot of social media posts, paid attention to a lot of it. I was living in a very visible world and I had to keep reminding myself, no, no, I live in an invisible world. And so God has called us not to be of the kingdom of this world, but to be in the kingdom of his world. Think about it, the kingdom of this world, what does it feel like? It feels like selfish. <laughs> it's the kingdom of self. Eugene Peterson says the kingdom of self is the most highly defended territory. Man, we, well, we will defend ourself and our kingdom and our rights and our plans and our opinions and our hopes and our dreams before we defend the kingdom of God. And this is not against any one person. We all do this. If you're a human and you're breathing and you're listening right now, we, we, we tend to operate in the kingdom of self. And that's the kingdom of this world. And God says, no, his kingdom is so subversive to the kingdom of self. And in fact, the kingdom of this world is so anti-gospel. It is so anti-God, it has to be overthrown. The kingdom of this world has to be overthrown. Why? Because it's, it's corrupt, it's wicked, it's deceitful, it's selfish, it's self-righteous, it's fearful, it's anxious. None of those things are the kingdom of God. What's true in the kingdom of God? Righteousness, peace, and joy. I know I'm not fully living in an invisible world if I'm not living in righteousness, peace, and joy all the time. 
And you're apparently a better Christian than me if you are like skipping around every day in righteousness, peace, and joy. You're just like, I'm just righteousness and peace and I have so much joy. I mean, we have moments of it, of course. But do we live in that as our reality more than the corruption, the deceit, the fear, the anxiety, the worry, the self-righteousness, the pain? Come on, which reality do we live in more? I would guess all of us tend to lean towards the kingdom of this world, the kingdom of self. And God has said, no, I have called you into a greater kingdom. That's why Jesus went on the cross is that you would live in the reality of the greatest kingdom that has ever lived. It's a forever, it's an everlasting kingdom. It has no end. It will not be destroyed. Nothing can overthrow it. Nothing can bring destruction to it. It is the kingdom of God and it has all power and all authority. And that is the kingdom you and I live in. That is our reality. This is our reality. But how do we inaugurate the kingdom of God in our lives? How do we inaugurate it? Because it's there, right? I think Luke's gospel, Jesus tells us that the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's in your heart. It, it, it's available to you. It's right now. It's present. It's true. It's not, you don't have to go searching for it. You don't have to wait for a specific moment. Not a, there's not a set date in time and then the kingdom of God arrives. No, the kingdom of God, as N.T. Wright says, is already not yet. We're living in it. The fullness of it we will see in eternity. But right now it has invaded this world. But how do we inaugurate it? How do we feel the righteousness, peace, and joy? How do we live in continual, not just, just sometimes mo momentarily, but habitual kingdom activity? How do we inaugurate it? We inaugurate it through prayer. We inaugurate it through the language of heaven. We inaugurate it by living in his kingdom reality and not ours. We inaugurate it by not overthrowing a natural kingdom. A natural kingdom would bring military forces in and have a democratic election. And then you switch kingdoms, not in God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, you speak his language. And through his language, he brings what is true of heaven to be true on earth. And then nothing is impossible for him. And here's the best part about the kingdom is then when you really live in the kingdom of Jesus, you don't worry about what you want. I think this is the hardest thing as a person, as a human. I say all the time, your kingdom come, your will be done. I mean, that's the Lord's prayer, right? And incidentally, the only times the disciples asked Jesus to teach them anything was to teach them to pray. They didn't ask Jesus to teach them how to cast out demons or do signs and wonders or miracles, turn water into wine. That would have been an awesome one. You know, they didn't ask any of those things or to take an ear that Peter cut off and put it back. I mean, that would have been also equally great. They asked Jesus to teach them to pray. Because this world demands that we learn how to speak the language of heaven. This world doesn't need us to speak its language. It has enough ambassadors. It has enough agents. It has enough people leading. The people of God are called to be leading with the language of heaven. Paul, this is, blows my mind. I love Paul. Pastor Paul, Apostle Paul, when he's writing Philippians, I think we forget this oftentimes when we're reading the scripture is what's happening in the life of the author. Well, for Paul, as he's sitting in prison, his two-year imprisonment at this point in Rome, as he's sitting there writing Philippians to the church in Philippi, that crazy redhead Nero, that emperor, those redheads, man, 
<laughs> Create the worst emperor, Nero, evil, wicked emperor. During this time, Christians are terrified of being persecuted. If they're found to be proselytizing or worshiping God, Nero at any point, I mean, he's so, he was so crazy. There was no rhyme or reason to his wickedness. If he, if he discovered any Christians, he would find them and he'd have what, he'd, what they called garden parties. He'd hold a garden party um, in, in, his, in his backyard. He'd hold this big garden party and he would put, they would put, they would put beasts skin or animals, dead animals skin on the Christians and they would release wild dogs to come and to devour the Christians, would kill them. He'd also burn them at the stake to illuminate the garden party. So at night as they're drinking and partying and laughing, the Christians are being burnt at the stakes all around them. Paul is sitting in prison at this time. He, at this point, he's done his missionary journeys. He started churches all over the known world. There are many Christians um, that are in churches that have sprung up, but come on, they're scared. They're anxious. They, they know family members and friends who have died by Nero's hand. They don't know if they're gonna be the next. They don't know how to live in the kingdom of God when they're so afraid of the reality of their life. And Paul writes in Philippians 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand, which by the way, the Lord is at hand was a very strong Jewish uh, comment and statement. It was way back, all the people back in the Exodus would say that Jehovah is at hand. So Paul's reminding them the same God who delivered the people from the Exodus, who delivered people all throughout human history is still available to rescue you. And he goes on and says, do not be anxious about anything. Okay, Paul, like, Really? Don't be anxious? Like, I don't know if I walk outside if I'm going to get grabbed by Nero and the Roman soldiers and the Roman army. Not to mention, in a few years later, they destroy Jerusalem. This is not a light time in history. And yet Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You know, he echoes the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about don't be anxious. What are the things that make us anxious? Is the same thing that Jesus referred to. What we're gonna eat, our clothes, our future. Don't those feel like similar anxieties that we have today and we carry today? And yet Paul says to the people of God, scared Christians, concerned Christians, not sure of the future, Christians. Don't be anxious. Prayer is the remedy for your anxiety. Prayer is the cure for your fear. When you get in the language of heaven, I will move. He's reminding them that God has always been at work. We don't understand all the things that happen. Scripture doesn't give us that theology because that's not the important question. The question or the answer that he gives us is trust the kingdom of God to be established in your life and see what God can do. So we have Paul writing to the Christians and I think writing to us today to remind us we don't live in a visible world. We live with an invisible reality and we are called to be kingdom people. We are called to be those who participate in the activity of heaven 
Don't be anxious. Pray. Don't be fearful. Pray. I mean, can, can I just, can I pose a question? And it's totally rhetorical. But how many of you were nervous about before, you know, during the election, after the election? I don't know where you're at. But you were more nervous and scared and anxious than you prayed. Except for our prayer chain, bless their hearts. They'll pray for 24 hours a day. But wherever you are and whatever you desire, whatever's in your heart, can I just ask you this? How many texts did you send to people before you prayed? How many conversations did you have before you prayed? The language of heaven is not opinions. The language of heaven is not fear. The language of heaven is not even this celebratory desire for what you want. The language of heaven is prayer. And then through our prayers, the activity of heaven comes down to earth and you start seeing God moving in all these unforeseen areas that you were like, how did he do that? Because we actively participated in the kingdom that's already here. How do I know we can participate? Well, Jesus tells us. Have you ever, have you ever thought about the authority you have with your keys? You know, the keys you have to your house. I hope not everybody has keys to your house. You have keys to your house. So you have authority in your house. I have keys to this building. Not very many of them because I don't want that much responsibility. But I have one big key that gets me in all the major doors. Just one. If they give me any more, I say I can't. It's a lot of responsibility, you know. I want one key. But that key to this church gives me authority. But if, you know, if I didn't have this job anymore, guess what's the first thing that happens? I have to give that key back. <laughs> If you, if you lost a job or if you leave a job or if there's a job, job change, what's one of the first things they ask? Oh, can I have your keys? You no longer have authority in that place. But Jesus tells us in Matthew's gospel, he says this to Peter. He says, and I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the keys of the kingdom, verse 19, do we have that? And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. How do I know I get to participate in his activity? Is because he gave me keys. Notice who he gives the keys to, the church. He gives it to the church. Like I could go on, I could preach a whole message right there. He doesn't give them to just our individual, like I love Jesus and I just, I want authority. No, he gives it to his church. When you're a part of the called out ecclesia, the church of God that he establishes, guess what? He hands you over keys and he gives you all authority. The same authority that's in heaven, he now gives to you to declare and live out and proclaim and prophesy and declare here on earth right now. You have the keys of heaven. You have the keys of the kingdom. The invisible world is your reality. You could be, my gosh, you could walk around, you have keys, you have authority, you could just like look at something, you go, no, I believe in the name of Jesus, you be healed. Or no, I declare right now that spirit, oh no, you be, you be cut off in Jesus' name. Christians should be doing that all the time. We should speak the language of the kingdom, which is faith, which is hope, which is love. It's not complaint. It's not gossip. It's not anger. It's not frustration. That's not the kingdom. You're living in the kingdom of this world. 
But when you live in the kingdom of God, and I know it's hard, I do it all the time, I fall back into the kingdom too. And I start going, oh, great, this is whatever. And then I go, no, I live in the kingdom of God. And in his kingdom, I speak his language and his language brings activity into this world. And then all of a sudden, it's amazing, but all of a sudden miracles pop up. Relationships are restored. Provision is given. God sets those he needs to. God does what he wants to. Miracles, signs and wonders begin to happen to those who take the keys of the kingdom and they take their rightful place as members of that kingdom. And they say, what I bind in heaven will be bound on earth. And what is loosed in heaven will be loosed on earth. Why? Because I'm a kingdom person. Why? Because I've been called by God. Why? Because he's working even though I don't see it. Whoo! We're kingdom people. We're not, we're not world people. We're not selfish people. We're not angry people. Don't you dare send angry texts. Don't you dare post angry things. Don't you dare. That is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. You know I love you. (laughs) I don't love the kingdom of this world. I love his kingdom. I want it to be established. I love this church and I will fight for this church to be kingdom people. We're not called to be like everybody else. We're called to live in the language of heaven. We're called to live in the activity of God. We're called to be the people of God. We're called to look like him, sound like him, language do you speak? What reality do you trust? Do you live in the kingdom of God, the invisible world where he's working when you can't see it? and He's working when your heart feels weary and tired? Is he working even though you feel frustrated and hurt? Yeah, he is. That's your reality. When you chose Jesus, you got all his kingdom. Jesus says to us what he said to the Pharisees, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's in you, it's in you, it's in you. We carry his kingdom to a broken, hurting, divisive world. But our God, oh, he's a good God. He's victorious, he's faithful to the very end. He never loses, he never gives up. He never gets tired. He never gets weary. He never gives up on you. He keeps fighting for you. He loves you endlessly. Come on, we live in an everlasting kingdom. And I want to be a kingdom worker. I wanna be an ambassador of the kingdom of heaven. I wanna live more in the invisible world than the visible world. I wanna believe God when everybody else disbelieves. I wanna trust him when everybody else gives up. I wanna speak faith when everybody else complains. Why? Because I wanna be the kingdom worker God's called me to be. Would you stand with me today, church?